Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, or perhaps on your local community radio station. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. That's correct. And Lauren Latour has COVID-19. We're going to do some climate environment news, and then Stefan's going to interview who? Uh, it's a. It's actually a panel of guests. Stefan's interviewing a panel of guests. Yeah, they are all talking about Fashion Revolution Week. Fashion Revolution Week. Yes. Next is, week. Next week. Uh, Fashion Revolution Week came out of after the the Rana Plaza uh, collapse, which killed over a thousand people. Uh, Was Rana it a collapse Pl- of a factory? Yes. Oh. Uh, in in Bangladesh. I that. And. Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen, and they've been doing this as a commemoration every year since, trying to pressure the fashion industry to do better. And so the interview is with uh, three different people. Uh, Elise Epp, who is the country coordinator for Fashion Revolution Canada. Isabel Sain, who is the regional coordinator for Fashion Revolution Toronto. And Lisa Amarongan, uh, who is the founder of The Good Swap. And all three will be talking about climate change, fashion, and then Fashion Revolution Week. So they're trying to change the global fashion industry. Exactly. Starts. It runs from the 18th to the 24th of April. The 24th is the anniversary uh, of the disaster. So now we're going to get into some climate news here. You ready? Let's do it. The United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released a major report last week showing how we can fix the climate crisis and saying that we have no time to lose. It states that we will go beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming even only with existing and currently planned fossil fuel infrastructure. And so we need to do everything in our power to shift to renewables. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres Uh, said investing in new fossil fuel projects at this point is insane. The report advocates employing the clean technologies we have already developed and designing buildings and cities to minimize the amount of energy people have to use in their lives. It calculates that we have a global carbon budget of 500 gigatons, meaning that we can only continue our current emissions levels for a few more years. Even that will only give us a 50% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius, and global emissions will have to peak by 2025 for that to happen. Governments seem to have no plan to affect this, which is why climate researcher Peter Kalmus told Inside Climate News that the report implies that we need a popular uprising. Climate science professor Simon Lewis wrote for The Guardian commending the report for blaming the rich now instead of the poor, as it was doing eight years ago. He also said, quote, For those who have been working for a better climate, the full 3,000-page report contains an astonishingly frank, an astonishingly frank assessment of the organized efforts used to thwart climate action, noting that opposition to climate action by carbon-connected industries is broad-based, highly organized, and matched with extensive lobbying. 
He goes on to say, it may seem ironic that this doesn't make it into the much more widely read summary of the report, but it's perhaps not surprising. For instance, the intertwined relationship between fossil fossil fuels and governments goes deep. Last week, for example, we learned that the UK... The former UK boss of BP is to be appointed by the government to champion the UK's transition to a low-carbon economy. It was recently found that global warming has doubled the odds of an extreme cyclone season in the Atlantic, and a huge East Antarctic ice shelf which uh, was thought to be protected from climate change has collapsed. And Canadian Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guibault was on the defensive recently about the government's decision to approve the Bay du Nord oil drilling project off Newfoundland, which will drill over a kilometer under the water for oil that burns slightly cleaner than oil from the tar sands. And it will take them 18 to 36 days to get equipment to the site if there is a leak. Guibo said that even the IPCC expects uh, there to be fossil fuel demand in 2050, with daily consumption 10 million barrels higher than the International Energy Agency's net zero scenario. And he expects emissions can be entirely abated through carbon capture and storage, and that Canada can still hit our emissions targets while increasing production, citing the Canada Energy Regulator Net Zero Report from December. I would love to hear what activist Stephen Gabot would have to say about politician Stephen Gabot as he says that we will still need oil in 2050, the classic, most classic talking point of oil industries that has ever existed. And to have to say that within days of the IPCC report that you just referenced above, which stated that we are already on target with current operations to go past 1.5. I'll get to this a little bit more in the second section when we talk about the federal climate plan, but I'm just struck by, in the face of this report and these news, there should really only be one question that we should be asking of all our governments. And, it's, and I'll circle back on it again in a second. But the question is this. Are we doing everything we can to limit emissions? And very, very clearly, the answer to that question is no. I, the Bay du Nord is just one example of this. You know, the first step towards solving the problem, a problem, is to stop making it worse. And yet here we are continuing to approve fossil fuel projects. As we discussed briefly in the interview last week with James Wilt, our response to oil prices increasingly has not has has not been to allow the quote unquote free market to impact those who've already bought gigantic trucks or SUVs that are responsible for vehicle emissions increasing despite the increased prevalence of hybrids or EVs. No, we see jurisdiction after jurisdiction give car drivers money to make up for that cost, as if their private decisions to own gas guzzling vehicles should be pay should be protected by the public when things you know when gas prices increase it's hard to look at this world and not come to the conclusions that peter Camus and simon lewis do as you referenced earlier 
you know, that our systems are captured by the he- by heavy carbon industries. And so a path forward must come from a popular uprising. And I think how we build that power is the question of our time. Back to Mr. Stephen Gibell, environmental terrorist turned federal environment minister Stephen Gibell, released Canada's emissions reduction plan a week and a half ago, uh, which aims to cut emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030 and pledges $9.1 billion in climate funding to that end. It includes a major investment in carbon capture utilization and storage, which captures carbon emissions at their source and reuses or stores them underground. Canada's oil and gas industry is being asked to reduce its emissions only by 31% below 2005 levels, which means that other sectors, especially electricity, will have to pick up the slack that is being given to fossil fuels. The plan also incentivizes and expects electric vehicles to take over the car market, and by 2035, no new traditional cars will be sold in Canada. Michael Polanyi from Nature Canada said that the plan fudges the numbers when it comes to forestry, discounting its true emissions, taking credit for the carbon that forests consume while not counting wildfire emissions. The oil and gas industry complained that they are still uncertain about how much they'll need to reduce, and Gibo defended the plan by saying that it was actually achievable and it would have been a lie to make it more ambitious in its wording. David Robertson wrote for the Energy Mix that the plan is essentially doomed by Doug Ford, since Ontario is expected to provide almost a third of all of Canada's reductions, but Ontario has no plans to even reach its own less ambitious targets. And finally, the federal budget. Uh, Christia Freeland, of course, Canada's finance minister and deputy PM, wants to buy more fighter jets in order to, in her words, vanquish the Russian army and Vladimir Putin. And uh, the federal budget also provides $10 billion for affordable and energy-efficient housing. And the previous stuff I just mentioned with the emissions plan is included in the budget as well. And also there's some other environment things. I don't know. Maybe Stefan has something to say about that. The, the majority of the money for climate initiatives from the budget is in that $9.1 billion that was announced earlier. This budget just sort of confirmed that. Um, there's some other pieces, but that's the that's the bulk of it, and then of the new spending, at least. Um, but no, I, I want to return to sort of that question I mentioned earlier, which is, does this budget feel like we're doing everything we can? And again, the answer is very clearly No. There are huge areas where it feels like the the government is simply ignoring the problem or hoping that their huge bet on carbon capture will be enough to make up for it. I mean, how does this federal government imagine a Canada that travels city to city in a zero carbon fashion? At this point, it sounds like their only idea is electric vehicles, and they don't even seem to have a plan for any kinds of mass transit that could be zero carbon, unless their hope is that private bus companies that have been leaving these routes for over the last four or five years will somehow come back with electric buses, at which point I'd like to see why they think that's going to happen. You know, how does this federal government imagine a Canada without the oil sands? At this point, it sounds like their only plan is to hope unproven carbon capture and storage uh, will allow it to continue in perpetuity. And as we heard earlier from Gibbo's comments about Bay du Nord, clearly that's their idea that they think that they can keep creating oil and that somehow 
carbon capture, which has not worked, will save us. How does this federal budget plan on reaching an 88% reduction in emissions from electricity, which is what their plan does state expecting to do, when the Doug Ford government is planning on bringing online multiple new gas plants, which should increase emissions from, from Ontario, rather than reduce them? At this point, there's that, that question seems to have no answer at all. And in the end, the concerns I'm left with from the climate plan and the budget all come back down to the single root. This is not a plan. It's a hope, a dream, a bet that innovation will save us from ourselves. And yet, for all that talk of innovation, it remains steadfastly stuck in the same old thinking that has got us here. It's throwing money at private business, refusing to face the highest emitting industries head on, and a capitulation to a neoliberal ideology at a time when what we actually need to do is roll up our sleeves and actually get down to work. I mean, we cannot tax credit our way out of the climate crisis. And it's clear that when the liberals really feel like something's important, they don't believe that you can tax credit your way out of the problems. You know, they're not suggesting that we get a new tax credit for these new fighter jets. What they're doing is they're putting up another $19 billion on top of the extra $8 billion they already mentioned that those are announced in the budget to do this. So for those keeping score, that's nearly three times the amount of money committed to defense than to climate, that, of new money. How can you see those numbers and defend the fact that this is being treated as emergency is absolutely beyond me. Well, committed to defense, committed to flying overseas to punish those bad Russians. There was a comment from a conservative commentator a week or two ago that I saw, which claimed that leftists were now seeing that the conservatives were right, that it's better to spend a bunch of money on defense as a deterrent than to have to spend money later. Yeah, Russia I, Russia would have looked at Canada and said, oh, they have a couple more jets, we probably shouldn't invade Ukraine. Well, but, but, but only for, for me, it's not only just that, it's also the fact that that sentence and, and this idea that putting money up front now to protect yourself from future risk is exactly what they seem to, what conservatives will continue refusing to do for climate change. Somehow in their mind... The, the climate change just doesn't, there's this absolute fundamental gap in reality as to what the damage climate change will bring and the idea that we could spend our, we need to spend our money out now. It's the same thing when you hear about people who want to keep our taxes super low right now or to attack the deficit. It's like none of those things matter if we don't get climate change under control. And yet time and time again, we're trotting out these same old talking points that completely ignore the actual scientific reality we live in. And that's what's distressing, right? It's that no one seems to want to live in the actual world that every scientist working on this continues to tell us exists. These are trends that can be seen everywhere in the world in small and huge ways. And yet, we still cannot have any really new innovative thinking about 
how different we have to actually engage with the world. The answer has to be private industry investing in new technology. And we're going to go back to that well again and again and again while ignoring tr so, so many simple tried and true responses that w because they're not, they don't fit the right ideology. And that's what terrifies me. What are the simple tried and true responses? I mean, a significant investment in public transit, you know, um, a significant investment in protecting and and in rebuilding, you know, wildlife, a significant investment to in farmers and helping farmers, you know, become have have their land become carbon sinks, like the the climate plan that they put out only expects a one percent reduction in emissions from farming over the next you know by 2030 when we we've talked to the you know the 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 what is it the national the NFU the National Farmers Union and they have a plan to be carbon neutral even within the next 10 15 years and that's not being played here you know like there are so many examples of investments you can make like and, and yes, some cost money. You know, like how, like why is it that only some places in the world can have high speed rail, whereas we can't? Why is it that you have places all across North America and in and in South America? Sorry, all across Europe and South America and Asia that have growing numbers of people using public transit, and 70, 80 percent of people use public transit. And yet here we are, you know, numbers are, are not, the numbers are way lower than that and going down. It's not like other places haven't figured out things that work. We just refuse to do them because they don't fit our ideology as to how we should solve problems. We're going to go to a music break and uh, come back with Stefan interviewing three individuals with Fashion Revolution. track of a tradition of the humanities that begin not with problems. This is part of the problem of so much of U.S. discourse. We always say we have problems. No, there's no such thing as a race problem in the history of the American empire. There are catastrophes that have been visited on black people and red people. As soon as you reduce the catastrophic to the problematic, you've already sanitized the issue. Never a Jewish problem in the history of Europe. Catastrophe visited on Jews that became sterilized and sanitized by calling it a Jewish problem that could be somehow compartmentalized and dealt with by managers and bureaucrats rather than keeping track of the catastrophes and its effects and consequences psychically, politically, economically, and then trying to tell the truth. What we love about the blues, which makes black people a blues people, is that for 400 years, we've been bombarded daily, weekly, monthly, with a variety of different kinds of catastrophe. But in the face of that catastrophe at our best, Critical, compassionate, 
deeply humanistic As mentioned earlier in the show, I am here with a packed interview. We have a panel of guests talking about Fashion Revolution Week that's coming up and what's happening here in the city of Toronto and also a little more generally across the country. So join me in welcoming Elise Epp, the country coordinator for Fashion Revolution Canada, Isabel Sain, the regional coordinator for Fashion Revolution Toronto, and Lisa Amarongan, founder of The Good Swap here in Toronto. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Amazing. So by way of introduction, can each of you tell me a little bit about your backstory and how you got interested in the intersection of fashion and environmental issues? And we'll, we'll go in the same order this whole way through. So Elise, then Isabel, and then Lisa. Sure. So, I mean, growing up, my mom sewed a lot of my clothes. And as I got older and more demanding about what I wanted, she would sometimes set me down in front of the sewing machine and go off to the other room and drink her coffee. And so then uh, a really sort of pivotal moment for me was in 2013 when the Rana Plaza collapsed. That was a factory in Bangladesh. The factory building fell and 1,100 people were killed. And it was this like great big news story. And I just remember like Joe Fresh was one of the brands that was found one of some of their tags were found in the rubble. And I remember going into a Joe Fresh and I was living in Toronto. I had no money. I was like, I just want some clothes. <laughs> and But I'm, I was walking around the Joe Fresh and I just, I would look at a shirt and just like see the images that had come out of the Rana Plaza disaster. And I just, I couldn't go back from that. And so I sort of came at it from more of the social issues angle. But then as I learned about that, I, you know, I watched the documentary, The True Cost, which is, I think it's an entry point for a lot of people just seeing sort of a comprehensive effects of the fashion industry on the environment and on so many people. And I just, yeah, I, the more I learn, the more I feel like I need to learn about this. Yeah. I'm Isabel. My pronouns are she, her. I have always had this connection to fashion and it's been like, I don't know, a weird relationship, but I'm more on like the make side and the design side. And I've always worn clothes in a different way, in a weird way, and had a lot of fun growing up, dressing up and yeah, and expressing myself through clothes. And it's been like a fun experience for me. And then I guess as I got older, as I learned more about the making side of it, 
I also learned about the actual realities of the fashion industry rather than this facade that I so often romanticized or saw. And so, yeah, and then because of this deep connection of making clothes and expressing myself through clothes, I got into uh, fashion school and I took this weird direction that I knew I was kind of headed into, but I didn't get to explore until school. And basically I see clothes as this wearable art form and this sculptural act of dressing, you could say. And I used it as a tool for performance art and also to understand our human interactions with these objects or with these items. So yeah, I guess my art practice now is informed by the environmental and social issues of the industry, but it's also this other avenue that I get to express myself in, but it still has this connection to fashion and this like cultural shift that we see with fashion and how it influences the everyday world. And yeah, and I just, I see the world of fashion as this interaction between the wearer, the maker, the garment itself. And I see all these interconnections and it kind of influences my work and it also influences my everyday and the decisions that I make and the stuff that I do with Fashion Revolution as well. Well, I like Isabella. I'm not a creator. I'm definitely a consumer. I've always been a thrifter and a secondhand shopper, but for me, it was about the thrill of the hunt. I would come home with bags and bags and feel great that I hadn't spent a lot, but still consumed a lot. And it was never about reducing my carbon footprint. I had been thinking about ways to get involved with climate advocacy for the last few years, but it's such a broad topic. I found it really overwhelming and I wasn't sure really how to get my toes in there. And it wasn't until recently that I started to understand the connection between the fashion industry and the climate crisis. <clears throat> so I started to hear about the secondhand industry and what happens to items that are donated in the West, namely that they go to the global South or they end up in a landfill. And as well, I just learned so much more about the fast fashion industry. I started to listen to two podcasts, which I totally suggest for anyone who's interested, the Conscious Style podcast and the Clothes Horse podcast. And they're both fantastic resources if you're interested in getting involved in any of this. And from there, I started doing more research, found a, a few organizations that I just was so excited about and decided to start my own monthly clothing swap here in Toronto. So now I volunteer with Fashion Revolution and Remake and I run the swap. That's me. Well, thank you all again so much for being here. And before we dive into, say, Fashion Revolution Week specifically, I, I do... In, honestly, in reading your bios and what you're up to, I got just, I want to hear more about what you actually do specifically, because there's a few pieces here that I find really interesting. So specifically first to you, Elise, I've become more and more, for long-time listeners of the show, probably know that I've become slowly obsessed with the slow movement. Over the past few years, coming out of whether, I think, I think the first time I was introduced to it was the slow food movement, and then the slow money movement. And now there's, I think it's called Slow Factory that's out of the States, I believe. And each time I get more and more of a sense of how really dangerous speed is within our over-collective you know, world of hyper-capitalism that we exist in. And so I'm curious if you can let our listeners know what you understand of slow fashion and what it means and what it entails. Yeah, well, sort of broadly, slow fashion comprises both what we think of as sustainable fashion and ethical fashion. So 
you know, both the environmental impacts and also the social impacts. But more particularly, it's called slow fashion as compared to fast fashion. And so that is since about the 1990s, 2000s or so, the speed of fashion has picked up so much. So where we used to have four seasons a year where, you know, here the spring clothes are now in the store and now the summer clothes, um, we started having stores like H&M and Zara Forever 21 having a new collection every week. And so you can always go in and always find something new. And now we have Xi'an and, uh, and others who are ultra fast fashion and they're coming out with thousands of items every day. And so this sort of ever quicker pace of the fashion industry. And at the same time, we're buying so many more clothes. We are wearing our clothes less. We are disposing of them. There is a, from 2000 to 2018, clothing waste in the U.S. doubled. And it's, it's just increasing. And so slow fashion is about the mindset. It's about the, the ethical and sustainable, which are things that companies can grasp onto. They can say that their items were, you know, oh, we, now we use organic cotton or now we do whatever more sustainable thing. But if they're doing that to push more and more product, then that doesn't count as slow fashion. I think, and, and there is also a part of slow fashion, which like I find that making is a really important part. Like you don't have to, but it's a really interesting way to understand the value of your clothing, where if you are the one, um, I've just been listening to some people talking about various processes that, that they do from, you know, natural dyeing, weaving, and I sew, and just the, the amount of time that goes into each of those steps. And those steps are happening. Well, maybe not natural dyeing, but dyeing is happening. And and I just learned that like all of our cotton that's grown in, you know, India and China is picked by hand. There's so many human hours that go in to the garments that end up in, you know, quote unquote fast fashion. Like there's so much that has gone into it, but the prices have been pushed down. So we buy a lot of it and it it's basically only fast once it gets to us in some ways. And so, yeah. If we understand the value of clothing and that can making your own or making, taking part in some aspect of making to really deeply understand, like, oh, this is actually skilled work and this takes a lot of effort. And it, it's a lot more difficult to treat clothing as disposable when you have put all the work in to make it happen yourself. Yeah, for sure. I find one of the things I find so interesting about the push for a more sustainable world is often it people hear it as, oh, I have to give things up. And then you hear things like you just say if that textile waste has doubled in the last 20 years. And it's like no one was hurting in 2000 for clothes, right? Like the people who are wasting clothes now were not the people who are having problems affording clothes in 2000. The fast fashion movement hasn't really, I think, solved these problems. They've just allowed people to be more wasteful and not worry about it as much. And, and it's interesting you mentioned making too, because one of the things I've continued to harp on is just the loss of some of the roles. Like the cobblers don't exist anymore. And I really want to live in a world of the cobblers. 
people don't repair their clothes anymore. It's faster to throw it out and do something else. And so we've made these conscious choices, right? We've made conscious choices that throwing out is just easier for us. And it's not a sacrifice to live like we did. Our relationship to the clothes in the year 2000 or before was not a hardship. For those of you who might be so young to this podcast, they're listening to it, that you may not have remembered the year 2000. I promise you, clothes were fine. But that whole fashion will come back in about five years, I think. I think we're currently 1995. We're, we're, yeah, now. <laughs> we're all about to wear low-rise jeans and it's your fault now. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. I mean, I think that one of the things within that that we've lost is having clothes that you love. Like if you love an, an item, you wear it all the time and you like, you don't want to get rid of it after wearing it twice. And so something that I have, have worked on myself is like loving my clothes more because when I love them more, then it's worth it to me to sew the button back on. It's worth it to me to like, oh, I, I had a shirt that I loved, but it's something had faded and so I wasn't wearing it. And then I over dyed it. I dyed it pink. And like, and then last summer I wore it more than I'd ever worn it before. And so I'm willing to like make these investments in clothes that I love and that have a story. And if you are just buying something that you don't really care about, then you're missing out on the, just the joy from that particular items can bring you. Oh yeah, for sure. And so from there, I feel like we were talking about making now. So we're moving right, I think, into you, Isabel's, your your wheelhouse. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about your approach to textiles as an art form and how your textile-based design process could lead to a more sustainable industry. Yeah, totally. I resonated with everything we used to say <laughs> because of my background in textile making, the actual process of that, and then also how that textile can develop into an actual garment. And a lot of what I do is going through that process. So it's not always that I have the fabric and I turn it into the garment. I do a bit of textile manipulation, and then I also do textile dyeing and screen printing. So there's all these other processes that I think a lot of people don't even know these specific steps of the process of making a garment. And I do think the craft and the technique and all these, you could say, ancestral knowledge involved in the actual making of a garment is so important, not only to understand for a consumer, but also for you to understand as a citizen that this is a beautiful art form, I see it as, that should be valued and should be valued in a way that's beyond a monetary value. And I think that's where we get into this idea of how do we love our clothes more? How do we show the care to the people that made it, to the resources that were extracted? to the communities that it was made in and also the technique from those communities. So there is so much involved and that is why I see the act of making these garments as an art form. And I think when we start to value it as an art form or as this craft, and when we start to understand that whole 
process, the entire process, and the complexities within that process will get a bit more of this recognition of the garment being something more than just a garment that we can just throw out. The value of it goes up. And with that, we're not going to see it in landfills. We're not going to see as much being produced. We're not going to be seeing this overconsumption happening within our own lives with a garment. And hopefully that can go down and affect the other aspects of our life too. So yeah, it's that emotional attachment, you could say, to these clothing. And I think a question that we hear often at Fashion Revolution is, who made my clothes? And it's kind of like, yeah, who made my clothes? But it's, when you actually think about it, why do we still not know who made our clothes? Their work, their labor, their love behind doing these techniques should be celebrated. And yeah, it's a beautiful process from the actual picking of the fiber, the spinning it to the weaving and then the dyeing to maybe even the printing. And then we get into the actual garment construction. It's, yeah, like Elise said, so many hands touch our clothes and their process and their making and their complexity of that act of making should be celebrated and also understood so we can carry on those traditions but also value the clothes in a better way than we are right now right for sure i I really like where you're all coming from because it strikes to me that it's a similar i think switch that i've seen in the say the climate movement of the last 20 years which is sort of moving from a don't do this conversation to a this is what we want conversation and because it sounds like what you're really calling for you know is really a call for loving your clothes more right that's what this is about it's like we want to have clothes that we love and take care of and so to you lisa i was sort of see that sort of dovetail into your work with the good swap is obviously people have clothes that don't work for them for whatever reason and there's no denying that people like getting new clothes. Yeah, both those things end up being pretty universal, even for folks who might not be as into fashion. And yet I do feel like this is a little bit, in some ways, I'm not going to put words about I'll get your opinion in a second, but like it does sort of strike me as a place to like find the person who will love the item of clothes best, right? Like it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I don't want this as much, but maybe someone else will love it more. I'll bring it to this thing. And, you know, and see how it does instead of the disposability of like, well, I don't love it. Therefore, no one could love it. I'm throwing it out, which is <laughs> the other way of doing it. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your about the swap series and its underlying principles and ideals. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're right, Stefan. People have come up to me after the swap and just said, I was so happy to see someone else take my item home. It made me feel so good. And I think we forget that when we're shopping because it's so one sided otherwise. But with swapping, you're both giving and you're getting. And there's this feeling that you're extending the life of your garments. And of course, I support, you know, going to go sell your items elsewhere, donating them. But this is just another way to go about it. And I think it's a bit of community building, which is important to me. 
And so in terms of the, the values behind it, accessibility is really important. The reason I, I decided to do swaps is that I used to run some with my friends just informally, and I wanted to open it up to a larger community. And it's really important to me that it's for all sizes, all bodies, all genders, a place where people can feel like clothing is meant to express yourself and to be on your body and no one's judging for whatever sense that is. And it's also a place to do a little bit of education and awareness building. I think it's a little bit of a hook. Some people have never swapped in their life. Some people don't do secondhand. You get in, you go with your friends, you do a little bit of that. And then maybe you follow Seal the Good Swap on Instagram and you start to learn a little bit more about the sustainable fashion practices we're looking to advocate for. And I think that if you can start having those conversations and as you say, look for what you want instead of what you shouldn't be doing. Like I'm not telling anyone, don't shop from H&M. I have... H&M in my closet, just like everyone else, this happens, but maybe I can have less or maybe I can share my H&M purchases with someone else moving forward so that it has a, a longer life. And I think, yeah, extending and loving and sharing are big pieces to the swap. And there's no shame in any of it. Amazing. So now they've got a good sense, let's dive into Fashion Revolution Week. So moving to what's upcoming this coming week with the Fashion Revolution, what is it and how did it start? So Fashion Revolution, the organization, it started just as I was moved to action by the Rana Plaza collapse. So were the founders of Fashion Revolution. And so they began Fashion Revolution Week the next year surrounding the anniversary um, it was April 24th. So now every year since then, this is the ninth year, well, nine, ninth anniversary. Every year since then, there has been Fashion Revolution Week. And this is a week where we, the sort of the first big campaign was hashtag who made my clothes. And we've asked what's in my clothes and encouraged people who consume to ask brands about the people behind the clothing and also and to ask the brands to show the show show their factories show sort of the behind the scenes and tell that and so one of the issues that came out of the rana plaza collapse was brands didn't even know that their garments were being made there and because there's so many layers of like subcontracting and just distance between the brand and the people making the clothes and so they only found out the brands because they saw the tags and the rubble and so one of the big elements to Fashion Revolution Week is demanding transparency because not that transparency itself is going to change the world, but we can't change what we don't know. And so first step, figure things out. And then once we know some things, then we can actually come up with some solutions. So the other part of Fashion Revolution Week then is this week of activism and education and bringing together communities around these sorts of events to learn about the realities of the fashion industry, to start practicing new ways of interacting with fashion and getting to know the other people in our communities and demanding better from brands. Amazing. And then so for folks who are listening to this live on the radio and are in Toronto, what can they do to get connected in the city here? Yeah, there is so much. We have a variety of different events and basically a lot of them are about knowledge building and community building because we're introducing sometimes fashion revolution to our community and they may have never even heard about these issues in the fashion industry. So we have a variety of audiences coming together with 
different companies. This year we have artists, some educators, consumers, and our biggest event I would say this week coming up is the Shirt Project. And that will be an exhibition with artists and creators and a bit about what I was <laughs> talking about, which is where the art and fashion can collide and become this value add, I guess you can say. And yeah, and so it's a beautiful opportunity. We have 25 artists that will be on display and they have received a shirt and they will deconstruct the shirt, cut it up. They can resew it. They can paint on it. They can do whatever they want. Doesn't even have to resemble a shirt. And basically the our opening, which will be on the 19th, will be just a time to celebrate their work, to allow them to talk about their work, show their process. And yeah, and what Elise said is build back those broken links, make sure that there's no distance between the wearer or the consumer or these participants and these creators. And so, yeah, it's basically a time to come together, see how clothing, when it's art, it can become a different value and yeah and we're all just there to support one another through this process of learning about the industry and also calling out the industry we also have a number of campaigns like our letter writing campaign and our social media blitz which will we be calling out canadian fashion brands because we often call out just the big ones but there's a lot here in canada too that could do way more and there's even smaller brands that could do way more and you as the consumer kind of have to agitate them and let them know what's going on and what you expect and what you would like to see. And yeah, and this week is a time to do both of those things, agitate, but also educate and yeah, and just keep getting other people involved because there's so many people that still don't understand the complexities of the industry. And then also on our Friday of that week, we have Tio's Textile Past. And so this is a, you could do it virtually, but you can also do it in person. It's a walking tour. Basically, you just go around Toronto's Garment District and there is specific spots and there are a lot of history involved in those spots. And it's a time to be critical of why we don't have a garment industry anymore in Toronto, but also understand how the same tactics on labor movements were used also here in our own backyards. And yeah, and learn about this vibrant history within that area. So it's a great way to get involved that way. And you can do that throughout the weekend. You can do it on your own time or whenever it will be up there and the map will be accessible to whoever wants to go and learn more about Toronto's textile past. Amazing. And there also will be a swap, right, Lisa? That's right. So um, on your way through the textile walk, you can stop at CSI Spadina, which is at 192 Spadina. And you can come to our swap on Saturday, April 23rd. It's happening from 12 to 3 p.m. and we're doing it with Fashion Revolution. And so you'll also be able to see the shirt project live in action. So as we begin to bring this interview to a close, I, I, I do want to circle back a little bit to the sort of 
heart of the matter. You talked about, you know, loving clothes earlier, but I'd be really interested in hearing from each of you why this matters so much and why you believe that the fashion industry is such an important element uh, of the climate and environmental action. And I guess we can go in the same order we had previously. So Elise, Isabella, and then Lisa. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the huge question, but I think what I find interesting and why I've picked fashion as my sort of activism is that it touches everything. It like, there are issues of dead rivers near where clothing is dyed. A lot of dead rivers in India, in China, in Bangladesh. There are mountains of clothes from the global north piled in, you know, informal landfills in Accra, Ghana, because of the clothes that we donate to thrift stores are only, only a small percentage are actually sold in those thrift stores and the rest end up in these markets in the global South. And then they don't sell all of them. And so then there's just this massive amount of clothing waste that is just sitting there and that is getting into the water. And, you know, and then that doesn't even begin to touch on the working conditions where our clothes are made. And so it, it just encompasses kind of like, you can be interested in any aspect of fighting climate change and there's probably an in with fashion. And, you know, but then on the attractive side too, is that there is the sort of the, the dark side that you can fight against and learn about and try to change, but then also like it's clothes and it's pretty and it's creative. And so getting to do those both at once, I find to be really compelling. Yeah. And again, to jump off of that, it touches all of us. Fashion is much more than just clothing. It's cultural. We see it, we feel it, we hear it. It's always around us. And I think it's a little bit misunderstood. It it has the capacity to connect to so many people. It's very universal between two people or an entire collective. And it's an important cultural influencer that can push the climate action into the direction we need to see it going. I also think that like Elise said, it's very much intertwined with all these different elements. Another example of it harming our planet is the resource extraction. We are seeing so much garments being made and the idea of it coming from somewhere is very lost on us. We don't understand that these resources are mostly natural resources. And so we are seeing large amounts of land being extracted. We are seeing forests being deforested, for example, in the Amazon rainforest. So much biodiversity is being lost because of the leather industry. And then another element to it is microplastics and our water systems being completely ruined and exploited, you can say because of the way we're even taking care of our clothes again. We're not reading the labels and we are also buying fossil fuel derived fibers. So they are going to leach micro 
plastics either way. And that's a big issue that we're seeing now. There's been multiple reports this past week about microplastics being found in our lungs and our blood now. So it's the fashion industry. There's so many different elements to it. And because of that, and because it's such a cultural indicator and a dynamic industry that involves so many sectors, we see how it affects people and the planet. And we're also seeing how it can force this change. So I see it on both sides of the spectrum. And yeah, it's the ecological environmental crisis is very interconnected with the fashion industry. And to see them as separate or to not address one over the other would do a disservice to the other side because the conversation needs to be with both environmental activists and you can say these fashion revolutionaries who are fighting for a better, cleaner fashion industry. Yeah, I'll just echo what we're all saying, which is we, we all wear clothing. Right? It's a universal experience and it's something we can all take part in. And to put it straight, textile production makes up for 1.2 billion tons of global carbon emissions each year. And that's more than international flights and maritime shipping. It's wild. It's huge. And we know that it's not up to individuals primarily. It's up to institutions and corporations. We know that. But this is something where you can make a change on a small scale and on a large scale at the same time and has those tangible consequences. You can see it in your closet. You can see it in the landfills. And I, I just think the two are so inextricable. Amazing. So if folks uh, have heard this interview and you know, want to get involved or find out more or make it to Fashion Revolution Week, how can they do that? They can go to fashionrevolution.org slash events. And there's a handy map that has hopefully all of the events that are happening in your area. And also it has some virtual events. One that I would like to mention also is that on Wednesday, April 20th, we are hosting an Indigenous fashion panel that is, it's virtual. So anyone across the country can attend. It will be live on YouTube. And we are bringing together four um, incredible people to discuss the role that their own culture has in fashion and sustainability. So I'm really excited for that one. And you can find that again at fashionrevolution.org slash events. Amazing. And then if folks just want to stay in touch with uh, all y'all's work, are there ways they can find more about each of you? Well, I, this is sort of diverting. I mean, so you can go to elisef.com or I would also recommend fash underscore rev can uh, on Instagram or Twitter to follow us throughout the year. Yeah. And if you want to get involved a little bit more locally, um, you can get involved with Fashion Revolution Toronto. And that is fash underscore rev underscore Toronto. And you can get involved through that way. And if you just want to swap, you can go to www.goodswap.ca or find us on Instagram at t.o.thegoodswap. And we're always looking for volunteers as well as swappers. So see you at the next one. Thank you, all three of you. Elise Epp, the country coordinator for Fashion Revolution Canada. Isabel Sain, the regional coordinator for Fashion Revolution Toronto. And Lisa Amarongan, founder of The Good Swap. Thank you all so much for being here and have a wonderful day.